Welcome to Rise, the United Independent Podcast. Together, we are rising above the fear and division of our current political landscape towards a civic culture of unity, stewardship, and care for the places we call home. On today's episode, I am joined by Jeff Genung. Jeff is the Managing Director, Chief Architect, and Trustee of Pro Social World, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to consciously evolve a world that works for all. He is also the co-founder of Contemplative Life, a digital hub that connects people and communities with transformational practices. And he's also the co-founder of Transformation365.org, an experiential practice network. Most recently, he launched Pro-Social Spirituality, a training and research initiative connecting evolutionary science and evolutionary spirituality. Jeff has spent decades as an entrepreneur and has worked with some of the largest technology and retail companies in the world, and is currently focused on exploring the intersection of science and spirituality, the arts and technology, with the aim of creating a more balanced and caring world for all. My personal sense is that some of the pieces that Jeff is carrying and stewarding are critical as the playbook of collaboration, the base code of how human beings come together across different contexts and ideologies to work together to improve the quality of life of their community. One of the things that makes ProSocial so special, which I think you'll see in this episode, is that it is a methodology that any community can use to achieve its own goals, connect more to its own sense of meaning, and work through some of the deep challenges that have prevented us from collaborating as human beings at scale in the past. And so I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode with you. It feels like part of the foundation of the independent movement is how do we use these new tools to practice the ancient art of collaboration. And so please enjoy this episode with Jeff Genung from ProSocial. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I have been really looking forward to having this conversation with you since we first met because I got the sense pretty immediately upon meeting you that the work that you do and the people that you're collaborating with are holding some big pieces for how we can organize more effectively. And as we're moving into conversations about organizing people outside of the two-party system, which has dominated the civic space up until this point, it feels like we have this incredible opportunity to use a whole new set of tools that weren't available 10, 15, 20 years ago. And ProSocial is one of those tools that is designed to help people organize more effectively and to create healthier communities. And so getting to know you and hearing a little bit about your journey, I was just very impressed by the journey that you've been on and how deeply this work matters to you. And so I thought we could just start off with just inviting you to share a little bit about yourself and how you came to do this work and why, what really drives you. Thank you. And it's an honor to be here and to be able to share with your guests, the listeners. So a little bit about my journey is that I currently work and serve an organization, a nonprofit organization called ProSocial World. And I came to this work by way of another nonprofit organization that I co-founded called contemplativelife.org. And contemplativelife.org was really born out of personal experience. My great interest since my youth has been on the inner life contemplative experience, contemplative practice, and it's taken me far and wide to many traditions and exploring many different practices. And it, it practices with different people in different stages of life, children, preteens, millennials, older 
people that are dying, working with hospice and practices. And I've been an entrepreneur and I brought practices into my professional life, into the boardroom, into the company culture. And I've worked with a lot of people that uh, were kind of pioneers of the mindfulness movement and the contemplative movement. But one of the things that I realized along the way is that everyone is contemplative because everyone has an inner life and they meet that mystery of their inner life in their own unique ways. And so when it comes to practices, there's no one size fits all. And so it's really what fits a person for who they are and where they are and how they're wired. And it was out of that, that contemplative life was found because working with a lot of people that are leaders of contemplative and mindfulness movements tend to be older because they, it takes years to develop and ripen as a human being, but they tend to not keep pace with technology for a lot of good reasons, but a lot of young people are leaving organized traditions in record numbers and having worked with a lot of them, I realized that it's not because they're not interested, but because they're looking for three simple things, authenticity, meaningfulness, and deep experience, which strikes me that they're looking for some kind of a deep experiential or transformative practice. But the question is that where do you go? What do you do? What practice is right for what person who's qualified to teach? And these are big questions. And so the inspiration was to create a digital hub that brings myriads of practices and communities of practice under one umbrella so that they could come to one place on their own terms, navigate to find practices of interest and connect with others of like mind. And it was through that, that it came across ProSocial. I was introduced to one of the co-founders, David Sloan Wilson, and asked if, if this is something that we could support on our platform and the way that we decide, is it a transformative practice? Or is it a community of practice? And so when I looked into what ProSocial was, which at the time was an initiative inside another nonprofit called the, the Evolution Institute, I saw that, yeah, there's a deep practice dimension to it. As I looked into it further, I saw what it was. The lights came on, it's grounded in science. It's based in this new science of cultural evolution. And when I saw that, I realized that this is something that I want to serve. And from that helped to form ProSocial from an initiative inside another nonprofit to its own nonprofit a couple of years ago called ProSocial World. And that's what led me to the work that I'm doing right now to serve that vision, essentially. Hmm. I've definitely been in side of social spaces where you have people from all different backgrounds, people with all different identities and histories and, and some of the biggest challenges that I've personally experienced have been places where there's breakdown in meaning, where conflict arises, where people don't have the tools to move through conflict. And so I'm curious the kind of core principles around pro-social and around the kind of contemplative practices that you bring communities through, how do they help communities move through those kind of challenging points of friction? It might be helpful to reflect on the origins of pro-social because it's fascinating. It started with Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel prize in economics, first woman to ever win the Nobel prize in economics. And her and her husband were researchers. And so what they did, they explored communities and groups all over the world. And what they were really interested in is understanding how certain groups and communities 
were able to avoid something called the tragedy of the commons. And the tragedy of the commons essentially is if you have a common pool resource, water, agriculture, and you have ungoverned competition for that resource because of greed and overuse, it tends to tank the resource. That's the tragedy. But they found that many groups would had no connection with one another were able to avoid that tragedy in very similar ways. In those similar ways, she ended up calling the eight core design principles. And it was for that research and that exploration that she won the Nobel Prize, which is extraordinary. And the core design principles are fascinating on many levels. One is the fact that Ostrom didn't think them up, she observed them, which means that they were already present in humanity, which also means that we know how to cooperate. We've always known how to cooperate. We're social creatures, but we don't know that we know. We've forgotten how to cooperate. And the core design principles are essentially the playbook for cooperation. And they're pretty simple, really, when you hear them. They're not like, oh gosh, what a concept. I've never heard of that before. For instance, the first core design principle is something called shared identity and purpose. Doesn't that make sense? Because if you're in a group or a community, you have to have a North star. And so if you can align on a shared identity and purpose, much like a mission or a vision for an organization, then you've got a compass that you can always turn to if you're deviating from it. So it's really the most important core design principle. But in order to align on a shared identity and purpose, there are things that have to happen within a group that facilitate that alignment. And this is where kind of practices and things like that come in. So what happened is that Eleanor, before she won the Nobel Prize, my colleague and co-founder of Pro-Social World, evolutionary scientist named David Sloan Wilson, came across her work and he recognized that her work is evolutionary from a cultural perspective. And so he began collaborating with her a few years before she won the Nobel Prize. And so essentially what happened there is her political science, social science, became integrated now with evolutionary science. So if you think about it, it's like a corpus and this corpus has changed now. It's evolving. And then shortly after that, another couple scientists, a gentleman named Stephen Hayes and Paul Atkins, both come from the behavioral scientists, uh, cultural or contextual behavioral science began to recognize that their work is very complementary with pro-social as well, the core design principles. And so what they bought, brought to it is something very essential, which speaks to the question you ask, which is how do people, what kind of practices and things help you align what they brought to it through a contextual behavioral science and the ACT matrix is the means by which individuals and a group can become psychologically flexible. Because if you can become flexible, then you can begin to align and adapt as a group. And if you think about it, then the corpus evolved again. Social science, political science, evolutionary science, natural contextual behavioral science. And then when I came onto the scene, the thing that is essential to me is basically contemplative experience, which there's a big practice formation to that as well. And there's myriads of contemplative practices that go well beyond just psychological flexibility, but flexibility on many dimensions of the human experience. And so part of what I'm helping to do is to bring what you might call as contemplative science or evolutionary spirituality to the corpus 
And what happens is that whenever there's something that new that's added, it changes. And when it changes, new expressions, new possibilities are born out of it, which I think is one of the essential values, the unique differentiators of the pro-social framework. And it's a framework. It's not a panacea. It's not a one size fits all. It's a cooperative framework that is able to integrate other methodologies, other principles, other practices into it. And when that happens, new expressions are born out of it, which is really a beautiful thing. This episode of Rise is brought to you by the second independent national convention happening October 29th and 30th, 2022 in Austin, Texas. INC 22 is bringing together leaders from across the independent sector to establish a vision for national transformation into good governance and your role in it. If you're interested in or passionate about moving America forward beyond our current divisiveness, rising as one independent nation for government that is truly of, by, and for the people, we think you should be there. Go to www.inc22.us to register for in-person attendance or get a link to the live stream and share the vision of an independent America with your friends. We look forward to seeing you in Austin or online as we let the world know that American independents are uniting and working together to create a more beautiful world. One of the things I love about the contemplative practice is that you can be Catholic, Jewish, Hindu, Muslim, agnostic, non-religious but spiritual atheist and still come together as a community around shared meaning and shared experience of transcendence, of belonging. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about how these kind of contemplative practices can work with different people from different spiritual traditions or religious faiths and how it weaves all of those things together. One of the things that we're exploring now for a couple of years is something that we're calling pro-social spirituality. And what that is, uh, both a learning experience and a research in initiative that was originally a joint effort between pro-social world and contemplative life sponsored by the Templeton Religion Trust. And what it does is it brings Ostrom's core design principles, there's eight of them, with another kind of framework of principles from someone called Brother Wayne Teasdale, the author of The Mystic Heart. And Ostrom, from a spiritual and interspiritual perspective, he explored traditions and practices all over the world. He was a very connected, well-known spiritual figure, served on the Parliament of World Religions for many years, author, teacher. But what he noticed is that there are these common principles that all the great traditions share in common. And he wrote about them in the mystic heart and identified them as the nine elements of universal spirituality. And so the idea was. I wonder what would happen if we took Ostrom's eight core design principles and we integrated them with Teasdale's nine elements of universal spirituality, two kind of universal frameworks. And we had to approach this with humility because the truth is nobody's ever done it. It's never been researched and you don't know what the outcome's going to be. And so this has been a couple of years into it now. And we actually have some interesting results that are going to soon be published, but the way that we're thinking about it and the results that are coming out is essentially, if you think about pro-social with the core design principles grounded in the work of both a Nobel laureate and an evolutionary scientist is a very complete and repeatable a framework for cooperation that enables groups and communities and even networks because it's scalable to flourish and to cooperate. 
So it's very complete on what you might call the horizontal dimension of social cultural flourishing, but it's incomplete because it really doesn't address the vertical dimension of the mystery of spiritual transformation and transcendence. And so the idea is that what if we brought these together, what would be the result of it? And we're going to be publishing and writing about some of the results of it, but the results are very encouraging. And in addition to Teasdale's nine elements of universal spirituality, and both of these are in the public domain and also available through pro-social world, is that is part of the learning experience in the research. We also, as part of that, invited these groups that went through it into contemplative practices universal contemplative practices, so not tied to any particular tradition, things like silence, following the breath, journaling, reflective exercises. So anybody could do them. Doesn't matter if you're secular or spiritual. And what we found is that two things. One is that the groups and the individuals within the groups did the practices, which is very, really exciting. And secondly, is that because they did the practices, they were able to touch a deeper part of their human experience and both on an individual level and then sharing from that level within the group. And what that does is it deepens the experience of the group. It builds trust and it builds alignment and it facilitates flexibility on many different levels. So that's how. I would answer that kind of in brief. What I'm really struck by in this moment is just the way, the opportunity that we have to come together as whole people. So instead of just as like our political life is over here, our social life is over here, our work life is over here, these kinds of, of frameworks allow us to be our spiritual self, our community organizer self, our person who's giving back to the place that we love together with other human beings. And there's just this, yeah, this feeling of flourishing or of like of healthy communities when you get to bring in all these pieces that if you did, if you were missing one piece, it wouldn't be as whole as it is when you have all of them together and to see how they work. And, and maybe just to make clear for people who aren't familiar with this kind of horizontal vertical metaphor, I think horizontal is like all of our relationships, all of our communities, how we engage in the world. And then the vertical is like our relationship with a higher power or our relationship with something greater than ourselves. And so even for someone who is non-religious, that greater thing could be the earth or nature or humanity as a whole. The idea is that it's important for us as people to have some sense of something that we're aspiring to or something greater than ourselves that we're connected to. Does that feel like an accurate kind of summary of those things? Yeah. And one other way of trying to articulate the, the vertical would be the mystery. That which we just don't know, we have to humbly come before not really knowing and it doesn't take much to see that in front of us because the mystery is in nature. It's when we look out at a night sky, when we gaze upon a loved one, we're surrounded by mystery. And so like the contemplative or the vertical dimension is how do we meet that mystery? It's unique for different people. And then I'm also struck by the rigor of the science that you're bringing to studying the effects of these different processes. And you mentioned several different aspects that have different bodies of knowledge connected to them. So there's like the evolutionary science, there's the behavioral science, there's the political, economic governance side. 
and then there's like kind of the contemplative or spiritual side. I'm curious, what are the different things that you're measuring in each of those areas to document the way in which pro-social is creating positive impact? We talked about, you mentioned psychological flexibility. That's one of those characteristics of like, how much can we adapt to different perspectives than our own? Be flexible to try to get inside someone else's experience and understand it more. Could you speak to a little bit more about the research that you've done to back up ProSocial and what it's achieving? The research part of it is really an important part because it provides some of the evidence. And with this type of work, that's important. It, it can't, everything can't be anecdotal and just testimonial. It can't all be analytical either. So there's a combination of both. There's both the quantitative research results, but there's qualitative research results as well. It gets into kind of the emotional dimension and kind of the inner space. So we're trying to look at both of those. On the one hand, we're exploring to what degree a group or a community or a network is pro-social. How well is a group or a community adhering to those eight core design principles? That's evidence-based. It's something that can be known. And also, it can be known in at a period of time, but also can be looked at over time and say, okay, well, over time, is this group becoming more pro-social or on any of those eight core design principles, are they moving toward what they most care about? Are they moving in the direction that they want to go or are they moving in the direction that they don't want to go and being really honest about that and then having that data that, that can inform and guide so that there's a roadmap for continuous improvement, but for continuous cooperation, which is the aim there. But also particularly when you're talking about like pro-social spirituality, there's a dimension of, are we moving toward, well, what is meaningful to us and what is meaningful to us? You've got all these different perspectives. The inner life is a varied landscape, just like the outer world. And so aligning on what is meaningful within a group and then what type of experiences, what type of practices help the group and the individuals within the group move toward that individually and collectively. And so what the wonderful thing about that is that the type of questions that can be researched is co-creative. It's not like pro-social worlds, these bunch of researchers in these groups or communities or field sites that we're studying. What's interesting about this is that it's co-creative and it's co-researching as well. So the community or the group wonders that we're not studying them for, from afar. This is a real world group in action. Participate in what that process is and they can participate in the, what the research questions are as well. We're still early on in terms of a research institute. We're only a couple of years old, but we are doing some significant innovations in this area around doing cultural field site research in real world settings. And uh, you will have in time a very rich documentation of what comes from that. But quite honestly, we're still in our early stages. Wanted to double click on the, or emphasize what 
you mean when you say pro-social? Because it's not just the name of the organization and it, ref it contains its own meaning. It's pro-social. But maybe just to unpack that a little bit, sometimes when we talk about it, we've been referring to it as civic culture. What are the patterns of behavior and cultural norms that help us cooperate better with each other? And so I, I feel like there are some like core pro-social behaviors and patterns, some of which we've already talked about. Is there a definitive list of what these pro-social behaviors or patterns of culture are? One of the things that would be helpful here is just to list the core design principles because the core design principles are what we're using is the framework to move toward pro-social behavior. So the first I mentioned is a shared identity and purpose. The second one is based on equity, equitable distribution of contributions and benefits. You can see how that would be important in a group to have balance within the group. And so what are those distributions and contributions and how are those benefits distributed within a group? The third one has to do with decision-making. And the third one is fair and inclusive decision-making so that it's spread out within the group. It's not concentrated among the few. The fourth is, has to do with monitoring of agreed upon behaviors. In other words, transparency. And you can see why that would be important within a group as well, so that everybody can see what's going on. We're all in it together. But then what happens when things aren't fair and inclusive and when agreed upon behaviors aren't being adhered to, there has to be some responses. And so the fifth one is a graduated responses for helpful and unhelpful behavior. There has to be checks and balances. And then what's arise? We're social creatures. We're sometimes messy. And so the sixth one is timely and fair conflict resolution. You have a process for that. Then there's a way that you can move through that collectively. And the eighth one really gets down to the essence of it. And that is the authority of the group to self-govern. Important. It takes, you can see how they're built on one another. So like the eighth, uh, the seventh core design principle, that authority to self-govern, it's built on the top five core design principles. And then the eighth one is really the, the most transformative one because it goes beyond the group. And that is the <clears throat> collaborative relations with other groups. And that's the thing that makes it scalable to any level up to the global level. And the eighth core design principle is built on the foundation of one through seven. And so it's scale independent at that point, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And the scaling part is really cool because up until this point, probably as, a, as due to the limitations of our technology, like when this country was founded, we needed representative democracy because we had to information couldn't travel very fast. So we had to vote for people who could then go represent our interests somewhere else because we didn't have this real time form of exchange. But now that we have things like blockchains, things like the internet, things like peer to peer tools like Holochain, um, we have this ability to organize in different structures than the kind of triangle shape of most mainstream political parties and institutions. And so as I start to see this kind of patchwork of local organizations having that last principle, inspiring them to work with other chapters, maybe they could be chapters on the other side of the country, but they both want to do a watershed restoration project as a community. And, and now we have the technology to link them together so that 
not only can they share, hey, these are the kind of social processes that are working for us, but they can also say, and this is the remediation technique that we use for this waterway, or here's a pattern that we use to help help the community self-organize its own babysitters so that our town halls, could, more parents could come to our town halls. And so instead of having this top-down system, we now can have these kind of clusters of organizations that are almost like cells in the body, which kind of brings us to the evolutionary theory and how that is connected to this, where if each small group is able to self-govern and they're also connecting with other organizations, it's almost moving from a single cellular organism to a multicellular organism, except in this case, it's all of humanity. And so I'm curious if you want to unpack a little bit more about the evolution of social organizing and yeah, your vision of how these kind of more biological structures might come about. Thank you. Thank you for that question, because now we're getting down to the most inspirational part of this thing. And it is based on evolutionary science, modern evolutionary science within the last 15 years. And this type of evolutionary science isn't just dependent upon biological evolution, but it's focused on cultural evolution. And one of the exciting things that we need to start shouting from the rooftops is that we now know that evolution, cultural evolution, can be conscious, that humanity can be in the driver's seat of evolution by itself doesn't necessarily take us to where we want to go. It has to be conscious. In fact, it often takes us to where we don't want to go. Especially when we're, we've got inherited hardware that still thinks that sugars and fats that used to be super rare in our environment are really good for us. And we can actually eat ourselves into chronic disease and our evolutionary hardware says you're doing the right thing. So we're actually at this point where we have to become conscious of our evolution. Otherwise what's gotten us here may actually end the species. Exactly. So right now. We're faced with two existential extinction events, the environmental crisis and nuclear war, both man-made, both require human solutions. And those solutions are impossible without cooperation. So how do you do it? How do you get there? We have to get there. And the thing is that. Is technology is the same way. You had mentioned that the technologies that are now available to us that were never available before, but technological evolution, like cultural evolution, if it's not conscious, has a dark side and it can take us to where we don't want to go. So we need to be real intentional about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And part of the ills that we're experiencing right now are a result of the stories that we're telling ourselves about who we are and what we are and why we are. So if those stories are incorrect or ill-conceived, then what we're manifesting in the world is going to be as well. And so one of the things that's emerging concurrently with these crises is the emergence of a new story of who we are and what we are. And it's a story that isn't going to come from one source. It's going to come from everywhere and nowhere. It's emerging collectively. And the early signs is it has something to do with the fact that we're all connected, unity. And it also has something to do that we're all unique and different, diversity. These two things are not bugs. They're features of the system. And in fact, when those things are brought together in an intentional way, become the secret sauce. And what is beginning to occur, which is why I'm so happy to have this conversation with you and so supportive of the work that you're, you're doing, 
and that your network and organization are doing is because the right kind of people and conditions and organization are finding each other in meaningful ways. And with the right kind of principles and practices and methodologies mixing together, because there is no one size fits all, then the possibilities for conscious evolution can really begin to take hold. And from an evolutionary standpoint, not only is it possible and now necessary for us to evolve consciously, but there is both the opportunity and the need for humanity to begin to emerge like a conscious superorganism with a whole earth ethic in mind, not just for humanity, because we're not independent and separate. That's part of the, the new story is that we're not independent and separate. We're interdependent and we're interconnected and we need to cooperate. And so it's interesting. And I don't think just coincidental that this new evolutionary science and the core design principles and nine elements of universal spirituality interbeing is like the further edge. Thank you. Thank you. Thich Nhat Hanh, are merging together it, that provide the mix necessary for this to be born. I'm really glad that you brought in the piece around unity and diversity. Because in some ways, it, it's, it doesn't make sense that we have these two parties that represent those two different qualities. And what we actually need is for them to be put together. And they're not actually separate. They actually serve each other. And so when we refer to the united independent movement, what we're referring to is that spirit of unity. We're all connected. We all share a, a home in this country, on this planet, and we're also completely unique and we should have the freedom to choose who we are and how we show up and what we create in the world. And so it's actually being able to put those two things together. I think that's the sort of definition of the independent movement. And it's beautiful to see the different spiritual traditions that have been saying this all along and and now to have this kind of evolutionary sense of that, actually, this is where we're going collectively, is our capacity to hold these two things and live into both of them. And I think a lot of people who are getting tired of the two-party system are realizing that it's not just black or white. It's not just one or the other. It's not just all about being one, being united and giving up the self to be part of the larger whole. And it's also not about just being completely on your own because we're actually in some messes that take coordination to clean them up. We can't just do them by ourselves or go off to our ranch or our eco village and pretend like that stuff isn't happening in the world. And it's beautiful to see how, you, how as you mentioned, all these different traditions are pointing us to the same thing. It's about that, the unity and the diversity simultaneously. I, I'm curious about the behavioral side of things too, because that's where things get really practical for how we have better conversations with each other. I think the two-party system relies on focusing the conversation on the things that get people the angriest at each other, because that keeps them fighting. And then there's actually a lot more that we agree upon. So maybe one of those principles is like starting where there is consensus or shared identity. And that's one thing that I've been exploring as a kind of core organizing principle is like, we, we can get to some of those big triggering issues. Let's start with like, where do we all agree? And that usually comes down to things that actually are the most important, like how we educate our children, how we feed ourselves, making sure that we all have clean air and water. So yeah, I'm curious how you, how do you relate to the behavioral side of, of pro-social? Yeah, it's such an important part of it. 
in Stephen Hayes and Paul Atkins in something that is called the ACT matrix. It's one of the practices that we use in pro-social with groups. It's very simple, but it's profound. So basically it's a grid. And so it's got four quadrants and on one side, it's moving, basically moving toward what you wish for, what you hope for. You can do this on an individual level. You can do it on a group level. So let's take the group level. So you can identify what is the thing that we're talking about here. Maybe it's our mission. Maybe it's our vision. Maybe it's an initiative that uh, we want to launch. Okay. On the right side of the matrix is moving toward what we value, what we want. And of course on the left side is moving away from it. Pretty simple. And then the up and down quadrants are present outer experiences. In other words, how does that show itself? And the bottom is inner things, things that don't necessarily show, but they're there. And often they're very well hidden, defended, and we don't show them to each other. We kind of sense that they're there, but so this is an opportunity to bring it out in the open where we can put these things on a grid of this is what's important to me moving over here. This is how it manifests. This is what's important to me over here. This is how I'm feeling about it internally over on this side here is this, these are the hooks. These are the things that keep me away from it. These are the unseen hooks and these are the hooks that you see. And when we begin to see these patterns from those that we're engaged with, oh my word, it's making the invisible visible. And once we see that, then we can collectively begin to navigate that to hold each other in trust because it also builds trust, which is foundational. You have to have, we have to build trust. Trust is something you have to build. You don't go in with that, but this process can cultivate trust because it also cultivates vulnerability and authenticity. So we're getting closer to who we are as individuals, but we also in this exercise, getting closer to who the group is as an organism. And so practices and exercises like that can cultivate flexibility on many different levels, because once you do that for this, then you can do it for that. And then ultimately you can do it for the big things where you map it out and say, okay, now that we've done this over here, let's do it on these big things here. And it helps the group move toward a shared identity and purpose, a shared alignment. And so practices with these things are really important. And these are the kind of practices that we've been taught in schools. And often, interestingly or not, they're not the kind of practices that were taught in spiritual and religious traditions either, because spiritual and religious groups are often some of the most dysfunctional in the world. So it's not like, hey, because they're spiritual, they're advanced from a social cultural standpoint, not necessarily, but same token is that those that may be well-developed socially and culturally may not be in terms of the, the contemplative dimension. And so bringing these together, you're, you're really bringing together all the dimensions, exactly what you said is that the aim is to bring our full being to everything that we're doing. doesn't matter what it is so that we're not compartmentalizing the inner life and the professional life and the spiritual life that we can begin to bring these things together. Just you can see how transformation takes place because before the evolution of social media, we compartmentalize our private life and our social life. These were like, and our professional life. Then social media came along and all of a sudden the social life 
and the professional life began to merge a little bit with the personal life as well. And nobody had ever thought that that would have happened, particularly on the corporate or professional level, but it snuck up from behind. And next thing you know, social is just woven right into it. The other piece that needs to merge and it needs to merge in a highly conscious way is the inner life, the inner experience, the contemplative, the spiritual, whatever we want to call it, because that's a big part of who we are and our essence. So that needs to be brought into the fold as well. Just in my own personal experience, the, it's often the things that are in my blind spot that are actually driving the way that I show up in collaboration and cooperation. And I've had moments of realizing, oh, wow, that was something from my past that was painful for me. And when I experienced something that reminded me of it, it brought that up. And the more I've been able to become aware of that inner dimension of my own experience, the more I can take responsibility for it before I act out. Oftentimes it's like these deep fears that we might have of, I'm afraid that I won't be listened to, or I'm afraid someone's going to try to indoctrinate me into their perspective and won't consider what I have to say. And that may be true, and, but it also could be an aspect of our own inner experience that, that we're just not aware of, that we're creating actually the thing that we're most afraid of. And I've had that experience so many times, it's, it's been really helpful to learn how to work with that inner space so that I can show up more effectively in a group and when I'm, we're trying to get things done. And so there's this balance between the healthiness of me as an individual, the healthiness of the community and our capacity to actually be effective in the world. We're not just doing it like a support group. We're actually doing it because we want to create a better world for our kids, or we want to create something that we're passionate about. And these are some of the stumbling blocks that have prevented us from doing this kind of work in the past. So I love that you're bringing that inner dimension of it and that when we make the inner dimension visible, we can actually be in relationship to it together and have make those shared agreements around how do we want to approach when I have a fear that comes up or how can I be more compassionate for the experience that you're having? I think that's just a really powerful set of tools and practices. Yeah. Is there anything more that you want to say about that? Well, just at this, did the, the psychological and emotional dimension is one that is often bypassed. I hear about spiritual bypassing. It's often gone around because there's such emphasis on thought in mental and intellectual, which are important, but equally important are the emotional and the spiritual dimensions of our experience and they're varied as well, but it's a different dimension and it requires different practices. It requires different approaches and we need to cultivate and grow and mature on that dimension as well as on the mental intellectual dimension. In fact, they can serve each other. So the psychological and behavioral sciences, particularly in recent years, wow, they're so well-developed, but there's also a really rich tradition of spiritual psychology. So for instance, one of the things that, that I've noticed in my own experience is that when I'm really scathingly self-honest, often what I'm criticizing in another is in me, and, but I don't see it. It's hidden so well defended. But when I begin to look for it and I find it often, it's much more difficult to stand on that ground of righteousness and criticize another because I see it in myself as well. So it neutralizes it, denutes it from that process. But that's work. That's practices that help us to see what is invisible on the inside. And it's hard work. Because often are things that we don't even believe are there, 
in things that are really hard to see and really hard to acknowledge. But when we do, if we can, then what can happen is it opens up another dimension of our humanity and it tends to facilitate compassion, insight, forgiveness, ultimately wisdom. So that's where some of these things can come together to help ripen the whole person. I've been thinking a lot about how special the United States is. There's people have different perspectives on the notion of American exceptionalism, but I, I think it's, to me, it's obvious that the, one of the ways that America is exceptional is the diversity of people and lived experiences that are here. And there's a really painful aspect of our history. And there's also this sense of hope, this sense that America is this experiment of if anywhere on the globe, people of different backgrounds can actually come together and be united by principles instead of like a ethnic, religious, or land-based identity that we're able to create something that's never been created on the planet before. And I think there was that sense when this country was founded that it, it was that kind of an experiment. And I think that's why so much of the world has looked up to the United States over its history, despite some of the painful aspects of our past. And it really feels to me like we're on this precipice of the next version of that great experiment and that the processes that you're standing behind and researching and developing with this entire nonprofit are the method by which we create a more perfect union, a more, a more of a togetherness through being able to go into these interior dimensions together, find a shared sense of purpose, meaning, a North Star, create fair and equitable decision-making so that everyone has a seat at the table. It really feels to me like it's the next evolution of what started when this country was founded. And yeah, it just feels, I just feel a lot of excitement around the impact that this might have in the United States and around the world as the new operating system of democracy. It's interesting when you think about the origins of the United States that were born out of revolution. And you think about where we are in the context of what we've been talking about today, the next major evolutionary transition, rather than revolution, evolution, but conscious evolution. And you think about that's so much more wise than revolution. Not that there isn't tension and conflict. There is, and you can't ignore it, but there is a higher order and there's a possibility for essentially coming under different laws and principles. I don't mean laws like the constitutional laws, but I'm talking about laws that govern both scientific laws, but also social and spiritual laws and principles as well. To me is that there, there is no panacea. It's not pro-social. It's not anything. The panacea, if there is one, it's a collective. And I think that one of the places or the roles that pro-social world can offer in humble service is a framework that is a framework for cooperation, a framework that is evolving and that in itself is evolutionary, where the principles, the practices, the methodologies that you're already using, groups, organizations, individuals that are working, you integrate it into this cooperative framework. And when we do, new expressions are born out of it. So it's not this or that, 
it's having this cooperative framework where we can integrate it and it can be the meeting place of lots of principles, of lots of practices, and begin to bring different focus areas of the human experience, such as science and spirituality and others together where they can find common ground. And in that common ground can then begin to co-create and build something that is evolutionary and that begins to work on not just a level of cooperation, not just a level of partnership, but on a level in which organizations can begin to work like organisms. And this is where evolutionary science and biology can help us because life knows how to do this. So we can learn from that, how we can do it ourselves. I would love to maybe bring us into a close with just inviting you to share a little bit more around what that might look like. We don't know exactly what it will look like. And I think what you're pointing to is that if we just have these sort of core patterns of how people come together, then there will be so much experimentation, so much creativity, so much collaboration that evolu the evolutionary selection will just naturally find the pathways that are, are produce the most flourishing, the most healthy communities. And so in some ways, we just need to get those core patterns so that nature can take her course and we find the best solution by just running all sorts of experiments. And correct me if I've misrepresented that. And yeah, so what does that, what might that look like in 10, 20, 50 years? The truth is God only knows, but what it might look like is organizations working together in highly cooperative ways where they're experimenting with what it might look like and feel like to work like organisms where like cells in a body or organs within a body and how those organisms can then begin to interface and connect with others that are doing the same, where you begin to develop the equivalent of the nervous system. Technology can be a major catalyst for this, but technology has to be infused with conscious design and conscious architecture that facilitates this. So it's not going to just happen just organically. It has to happen consciously, but the beautiful thing is if we look out, all of the conditions are ripe, everything that we need from a resource standpoint, from a technical standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, my sense is this, and this is the thing that really drives the passion for the work that I'm doing is. I believe that if we begin to very consciously integrate four streams of human experience of spirituality, science, the arts, very important in technology, in a conscious way, begin to fuse these together. My sense is that this will create a synergistic ex experience that will be greater than each of the streams individually. And it could be essentially like the agent in a chemical process that starts a catalysis that begins to essentially move from the nervous system of the earth that is right now formed by technology and communications to a central nervous system with a brain where human beings can begin to come through these four mediums together in the emergence of a conscious superorganism. I believe that this is possible, and I believe that's what the work that we're doing, why we're having this conversation today. Mm. It's a beautiful vision and 
I share that vision with you and I've done some exercises where we've gone out into the future and then come back into the present day with the intention of trying to feel what it feels like at an embodied level to live in that version of reality in the future and to just ground it into that, like the lived experience that's possible when humanity's acting as one coordinated organism, it feels like each person playing the role that they're uniquely designed to play, having all of their needs met and being able to follow their curiosity to be able to contribute in the most meaningful possible way that they can so that they live a life of dignity and purpose and meaning where they feel like they're able to bring all of themselves into the work that they do and feel nourished and met by it and know that it's serving the larger whole of humanity. That's to me what it feels like. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. In collectively that, that it seems to be, that's the type of thing that is in this new story that is being born. It's this collective awareness that we are each other's company and we are interdependent and interconnected and that through that inner, inner connection and interdependency, we can become united in a very conscious way. Beautiful. That feels like we just brought it in for a landing. Thank you for your words and your work and for sharing everything that you did today. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for these wonderful, profound questions. Thank you for joining another episode of Rise, the United Independent Podcast. This is a reminder that this is so much more than a podcast. We are uniting independence and fueling a civic renaissance to create a world that is truly free, fair, and thriving for all. Please share this episode with your friends and go to www.inc22.us to learn more and register for the upcoming Independent National Convention this October 29th through 31st in Austin, Texas. We are really looking forward to bringing your voice, your community into this movement, and you are invited to participate and bring your voice into the conversation. Thank you.